This is the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Dr. Martin Luther's sermon on the text, John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54, the healing of the nobleman at Capernaum's son by Jesus. It was preached on the 21st Sunday after the Feast of the Holy Trinity. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information about the Luther Sermon Podcast, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. This sermon is from Luther's House Postal. I'm reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher in Columbus, Ohio, in 1884, a text and translation that's in the public domain. First, the Gospel reading, John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went into him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. They said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And he himself believed and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Luther's Sermon In this gospel lesson, we have two points, which are full of comfort. The first is a miracle by which our dear Lord Jesus heals a sick boy without even going near him, only telling his father, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the boy is healed by this word, though he was miles away and knew nothing of that word. This is an excellent and great miracle from which we learn the almighty power of the word. Whatever he promises, he will surely keep, and neither the devil nor wicked men shall be able to prevent him. For we must consider this disease as any other work by which the devil torments poor man. To destroy such works of the devil, we need nothing but the word of our dear Lord Jesus, and it is done. As soon as this word is spoken, the devil is compelled to leave off. This miracle is intended to serve in the first place that we may learn to know Christ, that he is not merely a man as other men are, but that he is also the eternal and almighty God, that he is Lord over death and the devil, and that he is a Lord who is able to overcome those wicked powers by a word. Hence we also should apply to him for help in our troubles against the devil and his works, as the nobleman did. Especially should we appreciate his word as an all-sufficient power. Whoever has his word is able to do all things, but whoever is without the word can be saved from sin, death, and the devil by no other power, wisdom, or holiness. For whatever our dear Lord Jesus here does in behalf of the son of the nobleman, when by a powerful word he saves him from death and restores him to life, he will also do for us all, if only we would accept it. He will not merely deliver us from bodily diseases and temporal troubles, but also from sin and eternal death. We should therefore follow the example of the nobleman and apply to Christ for counsel and help in all our troubles. It is an easy matter for him to help us in our distress, He needs but to but speak the word, and we are delivered. He is besides very willing to help us, 
The nobleman is in great haste and wants to avoid every delay, but the Lord is in still greater haste and is not willing to leave the son of the nobleman in danger until he and his father could reach him, but heals him at once, even at a distance, and at the very moment when he said to the father, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Thus the Lord Jesus is no doubt willing to help us, if in all confidence we ask him. He was sent upon earth for the promise of delivering us from sin, death, and the tyranny of the devil, and to translate us into eternal kingdom of God. For this purpose the Father, our merciful God in heaven, has sent him, and for this purpose alone did he come. Whoever therefore desires and seeks help against sin and death shall surely find it, as we here learn from the nobleman who merely sought bodily help, how much more willing will not the Lord be to help us out of a far greater danger and when we are in far greater need of his help, when our eternal salvation is at stake? This is the first point of which we commonly preach when the miracles of Christ are treated upon and they are wrought and described to us that we may learn to know the power and goodwill of our dear Lord Jesus Christ and draw nigh unto him in every time of need. The other point in our narrative, and which is most generally enlarged upon, is the excellent example of faith from which we can learn well what faith is. Our adversaries, the papists, speak of faith as if it were mere knowledge by which we may know what Christ is and what he has done. Yet they have to admit and confess that the devil and false Christians, who shall be condemned, know that as well as true Christians. The scriptures, however, speak of faith as the means by which we obtain forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and eternal life. St. Paul says, Romans 3, We conclude that a man is justified by faith without deeds of the law. And as the prophet Habakkuk says, The just shall live by his faith. And Christ to Mary, whose sins had been forgiven, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Such faith is not found with the devil nor false Christians who know the history as well as true Christians. The devil knows Christ very well, and also what he has done and suffered upon earth. This a Christian must know also, and yet it is not the true faith by which we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But here we read what true faith is, namely, nothing else but believing what Christ says and promises without wavering. This belongs together. Whenever God makes a promise, it is our place to hold to it with all our heart and not doubt its truth, though as yet we do not have the fulfillment, nor do we see it. If we have the promise and depend upon it with all our heart and doubt not in the least, then we have true and living faith. This we learn from the nobleman. He came to Christ and asked him to go with him and to help his son. He had confidence in the Lord Jesus that he was able and willing to help him. Such confidence was as yet without the word and rested upon the miracle which the Lord had performed in Galilee at the marriage. Of this the nobleman had undoubtedly heard, and he is induced thereby to trust in the Lord Jesus that he will also help him. This we may call faith, but it is yet a weak faith. The promise had not yet been given, and the faith, or confidence as we call it, still rested upon an uncertain opinion. It is a question yet whether Christ will help or not. In case we will help, the nobleman will take him to be a great saint. If not, he will not esteem him so highly. The Savior, therefore, meets him rather harshly, saying, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. As though he would say, Faith shall not rest upon signs and wonders, but upon the word. Signs and wonders may be er uh, erroneous and deceptive, but whoever trusts in the word cannot be deceived, for God's promises are sure and cannot lie. 
Though the Lord has done signs and wonders in order to draw your attention and to induce people to believe, yet it was his main object to teach the people to look more to his word than to signs which are only intended as testimonies to the word. It was not his first object to deliver this or that person from bodily sickness. His main object and office was to point people to the word and to engraft it upon their hearts that they might be saved thereby. Because this nobleman had as yet no word or sure promise from Christ, he could have no certainty of faith. From the miracle at Cana and from other reports concerning Christ, as a new prophet, he takes courage to apply to Christ for the help of his son, feeling confident that he can help him. But this faith does not go beyond the help expected. Hence he is in a great hurry and fears the delay of the Savior by which his son will be the loser. This is yet the... far from being the true faith. He argues thus, If Christ will not come in person to see the sick, he will not be helped. And again, if Christ will delay his coming and my son die in the meantime, he will again be in vain. And how could the nobleman as yet think different? He had no word or promise to rely upon. But when Christ opened his mouth and said, Go thy way, thy son liveth, true and perfect faith follows which, according to its nature, clings to the promise of Christ, as we learn from the nobleman. He believes the words of Christ, goes his way, puts full confidence in the promise, and doubts not in the least that on coming home he will find his son sound and well. Then learn what it means to believe. It means nothing else than to trust in the word and promises of Christ as sure and certain, though we did not see it or feel it. It is the peculiar nature of faith to deal in things not yet present. Things present we do not need to believe, we see and feel them. A rich man, having plenty of money and goods, does not need to believe that for the present there is no necessity of starving. But it is different in the case of a poor man who cleaves to the promise of God's word, trusting that God, his heavenly Father, will provide, if on his part, in the fear of God, he is faithful in his calling. He truly believes. And it is impossible that such faith should be disappointed. It rests on the words of Almighty God, who promises that if we first seek the kingdom of God, all these things shall be added unto us. We all experience that by sin, every one of us has been poisoned to such a degree that we are void of righteousness altogether. And as the word promises forgiveness of sins and righteousness through Christ, this word cannot be accepted otherwise than by faith. A Christian is in a peculiar situation. In himself, he is altogether sinful. But according to the word and faith, he is without sin. He is pure and righteous. This is the glorious effect of faith and can never be reached by works, as the servants of the Pope preach. As to works, be they ever so good, we are at best but unprofitable servants in performing them, as the Lord tells us, Luke 17. As I have said concerning righteousness, so I also say concerning life. We are thoroughly drowned by sin in death, so that we are not secure for a single moment, and have to admit the truth, as held by the Gentiles even, that after man's birth there is nothing more surely to come upon him than death. From the example of others and ourselves we learn and experience continually how suddenly man may be overcome by diseases and other calamities. Yet in this veil of tears, We have the word that is full of consolation, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. This we who believe do not hold in our hands, we do not see it and grasp it, but it is promised in the word, and we believe it, 
And it is certain that, having this faith, we shall not be put to shame, because it rests upon the word of God, which is eternal and almighty. In short, as the word promises future, eternal, and heavenly gifts, so it is the nature of this faith already to lay hold on these gifts as though they were present, and to shut out the all doubts. It takes it for granted that the word of God is almighty, and that God is true and no liar. Faith has a keen eye for the word of God. If it is sure that it has the word of God, it feels safe against the devil and the world, and is certain of the victory in spite of the devil. Again, when faith has no word of God, it is not induced by appearances or the threatening or power of the world to hold to that, that to be true for which it has no ground. It would rather suffer any consequences, be they what they may. If in the papacy we had followed this faith, we would not have been so misled so shamefully and brought into idolatry and error. But we had lost sight of God's word, and instead of believing, we had fallen upon works as though we could thereby obtain remission of sins, and therefore by false worship and idolatry we are not only lost our goods but also our souls. Hence it is most necessary and beneficial to know what is meant to have the true faith, namely, to have the word and promises of God and to trust in that word, being assured that it will be fulfilled to the very letter. To believe anything without the word is no faith at all, but mere illusion, just as if you believe that you are to become emperor of Rome. If you even firmly resolved upon this, it would never come to pass. But when David in his low estate received the word of God by the prophet Samuel that he should become king of Israel, it, he had to become king in spite of all that Saul could do against it. This is also the case here. Though the nobleman had his thoughts that Christ would help his son, yet these thoughts would have accomplished nothing. The reason is that he had no word for it. But when the word came, which he heard from Christ, Go thy way, thy son liveth, all doubt must vanish. He could not reject the words that were spoken unless he would pronounce Christ a liar. Thus we also have the word and promise, as our dear Lord Jesus comforts the whole world when he saith, John 8, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. And again, John says of him, This is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. These are universal passages from which no one is excluded. The Lord does not say, If this one or that one believes in me, but if a man, that is, in, that is any man, keep my saying, he shall never see death. Neither does John say that God has sent his Son as the propitiation of the sins of this one or that one, but for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, because you are a sinner, and in the world, accept the offer and doubt not in the least that you are intended and included. This is the foundation upon which faith must rest as regards the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If our faith is based upon such a foundation, we shall not be disappointed, as we learn from the experience of the nobleman. We should not suppose that the nobleman had any advantage over us so that he could more easily be induced to believe because the Lord addressed him in person saying, Go thy way, thy son liveth, while for us it is more difficult to believe because we are not so personally included in the word but must appropriate it to ourselves when spoken in general. This is not the intention. Nor has our dear Lord proclaimed this doctrine to us in a general way merely, but as he said to the nobleman, Go thy way, thy son liveth, so he also says to every one of us in, in particular, My son, thy sins are forgiven thee. 
thou shalt have eternal life. And say, To whom does God speak with, and whom does he deal with when you are baptized? Is it not true that such baptism is intended for you and for no one else? You enjoy your baptism, not others' baptism. If they want to enjoy baptism, they must be baptized themselves. And what does God tell you and everyone that is baptized? His assurance is, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And again, you are baptized into the death of Christ. He has suffered death for you to redeem you from sin and death. And how could God speak to you more cheeringly and in his word refer to you more definitely and particularly than he does in your baptism, which is really yours and pertains to no one else? And when you long for the forgiveness of sins and apply to the servant of the church or to any other Christian with a view of obtaining the word of God and the comfort you need, do you not really hear the doctrine that Christ has died for the sins of the world, which is preached publicly in general, applied to you in particular for your own personal appropriation? For the words then spoken are these, Dear brother, dear sister, we are all sinners, and on that account would have to be condemned. But God the Son has for our sake become a man, and has died for our sins, and was raised again for our justification. Therefore do not give up in despair, Christ has rendered satisfaction for you. You shall be free. Only be comforted on account of his suffering and trust in them. Thus also in the sacrament of the altar, the body and blood of the Savior is given unto you under the external signs of bread and wine, and you in particular are assured his body is given for you and his blood is shed for you. And you are meant to accept this sacrifice as your own without any doubt. For which reason also the body and blood of Christ are given unto you and put in your mouth, so that you yourself may eat and drink it. Here God deals only with you who approach the table of the Lord and there eat and drink as he has commanded. Here we may judge what manner of Christians are those who for a long time do not desire absolution or come to the blessed supper of the Lord. Those who have no desire for these blessings and believe not that God wants to deal with them in particular by speaking to them words of comfort and assuring them of the forgiveness of sins and of life everlasting deserve nothing else than that Satan should deal with them and speak to them. Hence there is no lack of God's speaking to us individually. The trouble is rather that we do not follow the example of the nobleman by accepting the promises of Christ to us as sure and infallible. If the nobleman had followed the dictates of reason and not the word, he would have had many excuses for not believing. For who would have believed the word to be so powerful at such a distance and to effect such a miracle? He might have well said, I know how dangerous was the condition of my son when I left him. If he is to be helped at all, it will not suffice for you, dear Lord, to speak to me. You must come to see him, lay your hand on him, and speak to him. If any hope is to be entertained... But the nobleman overcomes all such thoughts, cleaves to the word, and trusts in it as sure as if he had already seen his son sound and well. If he had not been right at heart, he would not have been satisfied with a mere word. But he was well satisfied with the word, as St. John beautifully says, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Thus you see what faith really is if you wish to have it described or defined. It is nothing else than the certainty and confidence which you place in the words of Christ. 
Remember, first of all, what God promises you in the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then cleave to those promises, and do not listen to the opposing thoughts which will arise continually, nor suffer your faith to be shaken in any way. We continually feel sin and death. If you do not cleave to the word but lose sight of it and give way to annoying thoughts, sin will cause you great trouble and despair, and death will be inevitable. And what does a Christian do in such circumstances? He knows that he is a sinner, and that, on that account, death has come upon him. But he turns about, saying, Christ has died for me. Hence I am free from sin and cannot die. Christ has made atonement for me and paid all that was claimed of me. This is genuine faith, and cleaving to the word it is impossible that it should be disappointed and deceived. You may answer, I do not see the things which I am urged to believe, much less do I have them. I merely hear of them. Who knows whether they are true? I answer, only believe what the word tells you, and you shall not be disappointed. It will certainly come to pass. Follow the example of the nobleman. He too had to take the word for it. He did not see that his son was well. Because he believes the word, he is told by his servants the next day, Thy son liveth and is sound and well. And when he came home, he saw it with his own eyes. Then he need not any longer believe it, but sees what before he had believed. The same will be the case with us. We do not now feel forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If today you go to church, receive absolution, and partake of the Holy Supper, you are, uh, as you as to your person, the same as you were yesterday. You do not in any way feel different, and flesh and blood remain the same as before. Let this not offend you, but adhere to the word which promises you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Go thy way like the nobleman. Doubt not in the least, as your hour of deliverance will certainly come. As you believe forgiveness of sins and eternal life for Christ's sake, you will in due time have it in the life to come. Here we have it in the word and faith, but there indeed, and by experience. May God our Heavenly Father grant this for the sake of Jesus Christ his Son, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been Dr. Martin Luther's sermon on the text, John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54, the healing of the son of the nobleman from Capernaum, preached on the 21st Sunday after the Feast of the Holy Trinity. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church. To listen to more Luther sermons or find out more information about the Luther Sermon Podcast, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. There you can subscribe to these sermons and receive them on your podcast or iTunes or however you listen to those sorts of things. Again, the website is www.hope-aurora.org.